Hey everyone, welcome to Eerie Earfuls. Spending the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch! Each episode we choose a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Fair warning, there will be spoilers. I'm Justin. And I'm Brandon. Okay, let's get to today's double feature. The person picking the double feature rotates from episode to episode. This week was my pick, and I chose The Birds and Maximum Overdrive. Let's pop in the synopsis tape. The Birds is a 1963 horror thriller directed by Alfred Hitchcock and written by Ed McBain based on the short story by Daphne Nemorier. At a San Francisco pet store, socialite Melanie Daniels meets lawyer Mitch Brenner, who is looking to buy lovebirds for his sister Kathy's 11th birthday. Mitch pretends to mistake Melanie for a shop employee after revealing he recognizes her from court, where she appeared after a prank of hers resulted in property damage. After a tense exchange, Melanie buys the lovebirds and travels to Bodega Bay, where Mitch is staying on his family's farm for the weekend. Melanie rents a boat and crosses the bay to secretly leave the lovebirds at the Brenner farm. Mitch spots her during her retreat and meets her at the dock back in town, but as Melanie approaches the wharf, a gull attacks her. Mitch tends to her head wound inside the cafe where Mitch's mother, Lydia, arrives, having seen Mitch's car outside. Rather than driving back, Melanie stays with Annie, the local teacher. That night, they hear a violent thud at the front door and find a dead gull at the threshold. The next day at Kathy's birthday party, a swarm of gulls suddenly attacks, sending all of the children fleeing inside. The following evening, another freak bird attack occurs during dinner, with sparrows swarming into the house through the chimney. In the aftermath, Mitch insists Melanie stay the night. The next morning, Lydia discovers her neighbor has been killed by birds and had his eyes pecked out. Melanie volunteers to fetch Kathy from school, but a murder of crows settles on the playground jungle gym, seemingly waiting for their moment to strike. Melanie warns Annie, and they work together to evacuate the children, but can't save them from the sudden crow attack which injures many children as they flee towards their homes. Melanie and Kathy are separated, with Kathy taking shelter in Annie's house. Meanwhile, back in town, gulls attack a gas station, causing a car crash that results in an explosion. Melanie runs to Annie's house to fetch Kathy, only to find Annie was killed by birds while trying to protect Kathy. The Brenners and Melanie barricade themselves in their house, which is assailed by wave after wave of birds that begin pecking their way through the walls and doors. During a lull in attacks, Melanie investigates fluttering in the attic and becomes trapped as waves of birds attack her until she falls catatonic. Mitch saves her and insists they all drive to San Francisco to get Melanie to a hospital. When Mitch goes for the car, he discovers an army of birds has quietly gathered, but none of them attack. The radio reports simultaneous bird attacks also happening in nearby communities, prompting possible military intervention. The film ends with the Brenners and Melanie slowly driving away in their car as thousands of birds watch ominously. Maximum Overdrive is a 1986 horror comedy written and directed by Stephen King and based on one of his short stories. As Earth crosses into the trail of a comet, previously inanimate machines suddenly spring to life. Chaos ensues as digital signs project insults, bridges raise on their own, soda machines begin firing cans like projectiles, and everything electronic begins violently attacking and killing humans. At the Dixie Boy truck stop just outside Wilmington, North Carolina, an employee is blinded after a gas pump sprays diesel in his eyes. Then, a waitress is injured by an electric knife, and arcade machines in the back room electrocute a customer. Bill Robinson, the Dixie Boy cook, begins to suspect something is wrong. The blinded employee is soon run down by a red garbage truck, and a big rig sporting a giant green goblin decal runs over a Bible salesman, knocking him into a ditch. More big rigs arrive and begin circling the truck stop, trapping everyone inside. A newlywed couple, Connie and Kurt, are chased down the highway by a speeding Mack truck. They manage to shake the big rig and soon arrive at the Dixie Boy. 
Kurt tries to slip through a gap between the circling trucks, but their car is hit and flips upside down. Bill and another customer rush to help, but the trucks attack. They're saved by Dixie Boy owner Bubba Hendershot, who uses a rocket launcher to destroy several of the trucks. The next morning, a bulldozer and a military platform vehicle with a mounted machine gun arrive. Bubba uses another rocket to blow up the bulldozer, but is gunned down, along with several others inside the Dixie Boy. The platform vehicle then demands via Morse code that the human refuel the trucks in exchange for their lives. While pumping, Bill theorizes that the comet is actually a broom operated by interstellar aliens that are using Earth's machines to destroy humanity so the aliens can repopulate the Earth. Later, he sneaks a grenade onto the platform vehicle, destroying it, then leads everyone out of the diner via a sewer hatch to the main road just as the trucks demolish the Dixie Boy. The Green Goblin truck chases them to the docks, killing one of them before Bill destroys the truck with the rocket launcher. The survivors then sail off to safety. The film ends with a title card explaining that two days later, a UFO was destroyed by a Soviet quote-unquote weather satellite, conveniently equipped with Class IV nuclear missiles and a laser cannon. Six days later, the Earth passes out of the comet's tail, and the survivors are still alive. Okay, why did you pick these two movies? I picked these two movies uh, because, you know, when I saw them, I immediately, well, especially when I saw Maximum Overdrive and I thought about it, I was like, oh, it's just the birds, but with trucks. It turns out that I was correct, because when I was watching the special features on Maximum Overdrive, uh, they were interviewing, I think it was a production assistant, and he talked about at one point how he was talking to Stephen King, and at one point he basically just said, I'm trying to make the birds, but with trucks. And I feel like that was perfect validation. But also, both of these stories, you know, the, the more you dig into it, uh, both of these stories revolve around life being disrupted by forces that were once seen as benign. You know, in the birds, it's obviously birds, and in Maximum Overdrive, it's all of machine electronics, except for some sort of, of them. kind of, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, especially when it's convenient for the film. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yep. Both stories also involve challenging complacency. God damn it. Stop coming in the floor. Stop it. Both stories involve challenging complacency. And, uh, they also show us how fragile our happiness is. Like, you know, just now when my dog jumped down and shook everything. <laughs> and I had to yell at her again. Isn't that right? Look at that. You see, Justin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's funny that you bring up that you that someone on the special features said that Stephen King was basically trying to make the birds, but with trucks. Because when I uh, talked to Stephanie, I when I told her the pairing, she was like, "Why?" <laughs> and then once Maximum Overdrive started, uh, she was like, "Oh, this is the birds, but with trucks." <laughs> and I was Pretty like, "Yep, much. it's amazing." I, I would tend to agree with Stephanie that they are basically the same, except that The Birds is, you know, filmed and is paced very well. And Maximum Overdrive is filmed and paced like someone who has removed their nose and just replaced it with a brick of cocaine. <laughs> Apt. So I know that I'm pretty sure if I remember the dates correctly, this movie was made around the same time he would have been writing Cujo. And he already said that he could not remember writing Cujo. He was so high on cocaine at that point that whenever he picks that novel up and like looks through it, he said it feels like it's written by a stranger. He said, it's too bad. I like it. I just don't remember <laughs> writing it. Uh, and 
you can you can kind of get that sensibility from the movie because it's it it starts someone plants their foot on the gas and it just rips the whole movie mm-hmm. it's full throttle all the way through uh, until you know the midpoint when someone abruptly slams on the brakes so that we can very briefly have two characters have had yeah. sex but not have sex just laying in the afterglow with the most lazy like <laughs> romance yep it was the most generic bass and drum beat <laughs> yeah am i not that cute well maybe i'll grow on you <laughs> like okay <laughs> And that was that was done by ECDC, right? Yeah, I believe so. I actually don't know. I know they. What? I know that they provided like the the music, but I wasn't sure mm-hmm. if they provided like the actual scoring as well. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, some of the scoring was just like wordless tracks that they had written. I think I wanna I wanna say uh, I could be wrong because the 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 soundtrack you know is who made who. That's the official soundtrack. But I don't think any of the incidental music is on that soundtrack, so I couldn't tell you 100% sure. Uh, Was that basically just the greatest hits? No, there was a couple of original songs on there. Oh, that's... Um, Some of them were, yeah, some of them were some of their older songs with Bon Scott. But yeah, the, uh, you're right, the the, the birds, uh, the, the difference between the two films, you know, the birds has a really interesting pacing. Uh, it makes it interesting to watch, you know, uh, the flow, and it helps set up this blockbuster formula that you can see, you know, in Jaws, in uh, like all these other big blockbuster films that come later, like Star Wars and, you know, things like that. There is an ebb and flow to the story because everything needs an ebb and flow. You need contrast. Uh, it's the same thing in, you know, music. You You need slow parts. To emphasize the fast parts. I, I, I actually, uh, I mistook my exhaustion for boredom. Uh, because in the middle, when they're doing that weird, you know, post-sex scene thing, where they basically <laughs> explain the entire plot of the movie and figure it all out while they're naked and sweaty. I was mistaken. Uh, I, I thought, you know, I was bored, but really I was just exhausted because up until that point, there is no slow point. It's just like constant. <laughs> so when you get to that point, you're like, fuck, I could like, I don't know, take a 30 minute poop or something like I need a break. <laughs> you know, it's it's a little funny. Um, So we, we are uh, like we might as well just like hang a hat on it and say that like we're re-recording this because we recorded this episode once and we did. uh mike we had mic issues uh the wrong mic was picking yeah. up audio and so it's uh some of this we're, we're trying to approach the conversation a little differently than we did last time just so that it doesn't feel like we're repeating the same things <laughs> just to be like all right and now we will read our script and prepare <laughs> it and release it uh, but this time with the good audio but it's it's funny that you you're I really like Maximum Overdrive. I recognize it's not a good movie, because it's very stupid, but it's the right kind of stupid that there's like a joy in it, just an unhinged joy of just like, fuck it. Like, you can tell (laughs) King's entire attitude on set is basically like, I don't know, this, fuck it, let's do it. 
And that really comes across in the movie with the pacing, but also just like with literally as sequences happen and as like you could, I, I think he took the same approach to the script because you mentioned um, when you were talking about like machines come to life sort of sometimes when it's convenient for the plot. <laughs> that's that's true because I remember watching it and like, you know, the the first thing that we see is a. Uh, those bank marquee signs um it was it was just scrolling fuck you fuck you fuck you <laughs> and this is that was king's cameo in the movie uh also a very hitchcock move like just slipping himself into his his movie but he like walks up to an atm and it just starts calling hit saying like you are an asshole you're an asshole you're an asshole and he's like honey come over here this machine just called me an asshole well what he says is sugar buns come on over here sugar buns this ATM just called me an asshole. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, uh, like, the the ATMs turn against them, and, like, the bridges, like, turn on and start to raise on their own, and soda machines are, like, launching cans and, like, kill a little league coach. But, like, also, everyone that arrives at the gas station, at the Dixie Boy, they drove cars there, and the cars seem fine. Like, there's a guy in a, in the back room that gets somehow hypnotized for whatever reason and ele- gets those electrocuted. Those colors and shapes which were like never brought up again. Yeah. You remember when all of those, yeah, all those arcade machines just started showing the colors and shapes and it kind of hypnotized him and then he got electrocuted by touching a wooden pinball <laughs> cabinet. Wooden and glass, people. Yep. Science is not hard. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Look, everyone knows that the best conductor for electricity is wood. that's why all those trees stand up so well to being struck by lightning yes yes but like all that stuff happens but then like kurt and connie drive completely fine to the dixie boy without any issues they're chased by like three different types of trucks like in in their journey because they're chased by like a tow truck and then by like a one of those big diesels and later the trucks that are circling when they start circling the gas station seem to like run into the car almost like fuck you little car like they're mad at the car but it doesn't that doesn't make sense why that car doesn't come to life but like the ice cream truck does and is driving around what was it playing shit it's been too long since i've watched it now Oh, it was King of the Road. It was some, like, (laughs) hilariously ironic song. While we're talking about the nonsense of Maximum Overdrive, I don't know that I can say anything in this movie bugs me with the exception of, like, two decisions that they've made later in the movie. Um, But... It feels a little weird that they set up the ice cream truck to be kind of like this very sinister presence. Because when, uh, what's the kid's name? I can't remember. Billy? Joey? I don't think it really matters. As long as it's a face on a bike. (laughs) King was like, just put him on the camera, you know. Whatever. The the kid, the, the son of the gas station worker that got gas in his eyes. When that kid is at the Little League game and then he, like, rides away on his bike and he sees, like, a lawnmower chasing people and that, like, a Walkman had, like, electrocuted people. And, but, like, they set up the ice cream truck as this, like, sinister presence because you can hear the song coming bef- way before the truck gets there and he hides. And the truck, like, drives through the frame, turns the corner, and drives away. And you feel like he, you get the impression that, like, he just, he just avoided some terrible situation. 
and then the truck is never seen again until the very end of the movie. Hmm. And it's there for like 30 seconds. Like they, it's, it's one of the last trucks they shoot. Is it the one that the little boy shoots? Yeah. I think they only brought it back just for that arc. Yeah. But like, but why? Like (laughs) you need a middle point for, for stories to have an arc. You have to have an arc. It has to start low, build high, then go low. (laughs) Oversimplifying it. As long as there is an introduction (laughs) and a resolution, the middle is all just filmy 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 like well so like there's a thing that they do with like subtle plot points in movies called planting where they if they want to explore a particular theme they'll do something they'll have something that reflects that theme happen that looks incidental but they'll carry it almost like a running joke throughout the movie and like uh mad max fury road is a great example because um early in the movie max uh, has a shoe stolen. He, like, uh, someone pulls up his boot off of his foot when he's in the middle of fighting the war boys. There was this build-up and payoff. There was, like, the initial moment of his shoe being stolen, and then a moment where, like, Nicholas, or he, like, steals Nicholas Holt's shoe, and then later he gives Nicholas Holt a shoe. And that completes that arc. And it's just a little incidental thing, but it, it sort of reflects the arc of the movie and the way that Max comes to respect Nicholas Holt's character. And there's none of that in this. It's just, like, it's a good thing he didn't get caught by that ice cream truck. If if that had been the truck that, like, killed his dad, like, that would have made sense. It would have made an arc, like, a thematic end to that, because he would have been like, my name is Inigo Montoya, you run over my father, prepare to be um, yep. sent to the shop. Bazooka'd. Yep. <laughs> but that Yeah, I'm happen. surprised that the, they went with the ice cream truck and not the steamroller, because the steamroller killed, like, a lot of his, you know, friends, I guess, mm-hmm. if they're friends. Gruesomely. Yes. Well, I mean, it would have been worse had, you know, Stephen King had it his way, because I believe they set up that shot and filmed it like three different times. Um, And the the one that ended up in the movie is obviously the least gruesome one where that kid gets run over. But they'd filmed it like two or three times. One time it was like a dummy. And I don't remember what they did. But when they rolled over it, the head popped and like the the top of the head exploded in this like foam cushion stuff came out but they said when they looked at it on film it was one of the most disturbing things they'd ever seen because it looked like the brain had actually like popped and squished out and so then they did it again and they basically just filled this mannequin with fake blood and they were like okay now we're gonna roll it over and they did and it just gushed everywhere it gets all over the steamroller it gets all over the grass and then they're like you know we should probably film a version of this that does not have anything and then they had to clean all of that up <laughs> and film it again <laughs> and that happens so many times in the movie like there were so many shots uh there was a shot that they filmed after that guy gets hit in the head with a can where like that spot and some of this stuff was completely unintentional. It just happened and it worked and it happened to be really gross. That spot ended up getting like a, an air bubble underneath it. Mm -hmm. And so before like the blood came out of it, it swelled up like really big and started like spurting blood. And (laughs) yeah. And they were like, Oh my God, it's amazing. It was completely unintentional. It wasn't designed to do that, but it did. And it, it worked, and of course it never made it in the movie because that was too it's too much. One of my favorite ones that did make it in the movie was when, I guess it's that guy, that guy that got diesel in his eyes, gets hit by the truck, and 
blood just goes everywhere. It's amazing. <laughs> yep. And it's because they basically just stuck a mannequin over there with his same clothes on. And underneath, they just had like sandwich bags full of fake blood pin cushioned underneath <laughs> so that when it gets hit by the truck, it just explodes everywhere. It's amazing. That actually did make it in the movie. It's glorious. See, it's too bad that they cut some of that stuff because like, you mentioned the the coach getting hit with the cans, and that specifically is a scene that, like, when he gets hit in the movie, in the shot that's in the movie, it it hits him in the head. It looks like it hurts, but then yeah. later, when they cut to him laying on the ground, he has this like can-sized hole in his head where it looks mm-hmm. like it like like a missile shot him in the head, and that's not what we see before he falls. So it's like, when did that happen? He got hit in the head, and then he fell. Or no, he got hit in the in the balls, and then yep. he like crouched, and then he got hit in the head, and he got knocked out. But like it did, mm-hmm. when you see him like so gruesomely dead, you're like, did he get did he get hit again? <laughs> was the was the hole just slow to form? It's not like a bruise; it was like yeah. a hole. It definitely was a little slow to form. There's still like they had some like still shots. Somebody's got to have this footage somewhere because they they would show like still shots in the special features of some of those effects especially the the head one. And yeah. I was like, okay, so so we have the still shots, so the film is somewhere. I just don't know w- where it is and how to incorporate it into the movie. It's a little funny that you were like, oh, this movie, it goes too fast. It doesn't slow down. It's just cheesy nonsense. Which well, it's is not that it just goes too fast. It's just always fast. I don't mind fast as long as there's some slow mixed in, you know? Sure. But if it's, it's just, just all blur, it just gets boring. It was just your same reaction to Shocker, and so, like, and they both, they feel yeah. very much of the same DNA. They do. There were just more reasons that I did not like Shocker. For one, you know, Stephen King has taste, so when he, you know, was like, I want a really awesome soundtrack, why don't I get ACDC? He actually got ACDC to do the soundtrack. Wes Craven was like, I need a band to do a cool shocker theme, but I don't have that much money. What if I just get knockoff poison to do it? And it'll be great. And it's not. The song is not memorable. There's just Shocker! There's just no Ugh. That's all I can remember of it. Yeah, that's that's all I can remember either. Anyway, I don't wanna I don't wanna relitigate Shocker. It just was they felt very much of their time. Very 80s, very like yeah. dumb, like uh, hair metal rock. Yeah, see, that's that's something that's really interesting. Um, so the the music that's in Maximum Overdrive actually, you know, pretty much dates the movie other than all the electronics that are in the movie, which are horribly outdated. But also the music very much cements when it was made it, mid 80s, like prime classic rock era, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um the birds in that way uh is almost sort of timeless other than you know some of the, like the cars and stuff. The birds is way more timeless because number 1 the thing that is, you know, attacking everybody is something that we still have around today. I mean, we still have semi trucks, but birds largely have not evolved much since 1960 whatever. So, they're still the same. Some of them are still alive since 1960, whatever. Look, we all know birds aren't real. And um, (laughs) bird technology has come a long way. Uh, Thank you, government. (laughs) That is my favorite stupid conspiracy theory that birds aren't real. I just, 
I love it so much. <laughs> it is amazingly dumb. But one of, I think, one of the things that kind of makes The Birds Timeless is not only the subject matter, but also, I think, the soundtrack, because rather than using really any instrumentation, it's all just birds. It's really interesting to me uh, because as a music person because the birds soundtrack is, you know, we would normally uh, kind of classify that as like music concrete where you're taking a bunch of random sounds, putting them together and creating kind of a quote unquote sonic sculpture, which we've talked about before with like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The first one has mm-hmm. employs that same effect. And I think, you know. Some of those movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and others were inspired by this soundtrack to this film because it is just so much. It's just bird noises. It makes it sound so much less menacing than it is because, you know, when you think of bird noises, I don't know, you think of birds being like, Mama Cracker or whatever, but it's like... Scary sounds, a lot of fluttering and flapping. Um, they used uh, one of the inspirations was called a uh, tritonium, I believe is what it's called. Tritonium, which was uh, it's a it's actually a German instrument that's um, it was designed like instead of a you know keyboard, it uh, it was kind of kind of like one of the first uh, electronic musical instruments that was ever invented. Um, and it's kind of like the precursor to a soundboard almost, cause you could like, you know, record bits of sound and then play it back and you can adjust the pitch of those sounds, which is what they did for the birds. They just recorded a shit ton of bird sounds. And then they were like, we have to piece them together in such a way. And they, you know, can adjust the reverb and the pitch and every little tiny thing you can think of to, you know, eventually create kind of a sonic sculpture for birds and that's really interesting um to think about that there's no other music throughout the entire movie the entire soundtrack with all the bird attacks it's all just like those bird noises that they've manufactured um at the beginning it's birds at the end it's bird noises Mm -hmm. the only song is that little folk song that they're uh singing which is (laughs) i can't fucking remember the name of that song uh (laughs) It's so annoying. It went on for like 10 minutes. It was so long. So that was the thing was, uh, you know, uh, that was the thing was they had the song ready because it was public domain. So they were like, yeah, just make the kids sing the song. And it was not nearly long enough for that scene because that scene uh, that that you hear it is the scene where, uh, what is her name? Mar- it's not Marnie. That's a Melanie. different fucking movie. God damn it. Melanie. Yes. <laughs> it's not Marnie because that movie's Marnie. Anyway. Um, so Melanie, she, you know, she's going over to the bench and she's going to go smoke a cigarette and she's waiting on the kids to be done so that she can go in and uh, whatever, whatever she's doing. Anyway. Uh, and you see one crow fly over and then you see another, you know, and, you know, it's it's very really well done scene because you have this you have this folk song that's being sung by the kids and it's very repetitive and it just kind of kind of lulls you into like this false sense of security you know you're hearing it repeated over and over again and it's allowing 
you to have your focus pulled away from the birds, even though you do notice them every once in a while. So it's kind of creating the scene from Melanie's point of view where you are, you know, distracted and not really noticing until, you know, the entire jungle gym is covered with birds. And then you're like, fuck, I have to get inside the schoolhouse and warn the children. That's so, a really yeah. good scene. Um, anyway, just because the way it builds, like yeah. the, the pacing of that specific scene is so good with the way that like the bird, it's not just that the birds are slowly gathering. It's the way they it's the way they shoot it and the way they make that soundscape it feels like the birds are waiting like they that they know there are kids inside and they're just waiting for an opportunity which you don't really get with the rest of it much because it feels more like just sort of a a a weird random bursts of aggression but this mm-hmm. this one in particular there's a lot of build up to it and it almost feels like they're like a hive mind waiting it's oh, it's so good yeah, and, uh, you know, oh, yeah, that guy. So the guy that was on set, they basically got the okay to do the uh, to do the public domain song. They had the kids do it, and Alfred Hitchcock was like, I need more song to cover this scene because he was one of those crazy people where he knew, like, how he could in his head kind of configure, you know, how how much footage of actual film there was, how that translates into time you know, for like 32 frames per second or whatever it is, 24 frames per second, whatever the standard is for yeah. f- for studio films. Um, and he had all of that timed out. So he was like, I need like, you know, this much more music. And so that guy just went back and, you know, wrote verse after verse after verse after verse. And he was like, I had so much music for him. And I was like, here, just, just have them <laughs> just new verses over and over and over. <laughs> and and that's what's in the final version of the film because, you know, they, they eventually uh, ran out of public domain verses. So they were like, mm-hmm. just fucking sing this guy's verses. And that guy still gets royalty checks when they play the movie like on TCM or whatever because <laughs> his his verses are featured in the film. So that's amazing. Yeah. I I love the way the birds never explains itself. Like I said, the the crow scene in particular outside of the school, it feels like the birds are waiting for those kids. And then when the kids finally make their escape, the birds are like, "All right, boys, get to it." And but like I like how at the end, like the the ending is so tense of Mitch just just walking to the car and pulling it up and there's you know hundreds of birds just sitting and watching him and the movie ends with them just getting in the car and driving away they just drive down the road the birds don't attack and we're just left literally with like a why? Por qué? and I, I love that it's just creepy. It's one of those things where, like, we, we know if nature were like, fuck you, humans, you're gone. Like, we wouldn't have a chance because mm-hmm. they're, they way outnumber us, which that lady in the cafe even brings up. The one that is like, there's like 74 billion birds in the world. Are you telling me that they're all coordinating? It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, Maximum Overdrive is like, no, here's a thesis explanation yep. of exactly what happens. We're going to tell it, tell you what happens at the very beginning. The Earth is in the tail of a comet. 
machines are coming to life. Then we're going to have the characters guess that that's why, go further and somehow intuit, oh, if we're in the tail of a comet, that must mean that we're under the influence of an alien ship who's coming down to civilization to clear us out using our own machines against us so that then they can settle on this earth in our place. I mean, just logically, that's, that's where mind, the mind goes. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, bring up another title card to confirm, yes, in fact, those two random character, those two characters in the afterglow of sex somehow reached the heightened mind state uh, to yep. intuit this intergalactic being's plan because the Russians shot it out of the sky. Eh, that checks out. I also love the very, like, very 80s Cold War reference of a Russian, quote, weather satellite with class yeah, four right. nuclear missiles shot it out of the sky. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the 80s. Uh. That's actually, uh, yeah, one of the things that makes, I think, in my opinion, the birds more timeless than Maximum Overdrive is the fact that they don't ever explain it. And they talk about how it's a thing that kind of grows, you know, from Bodega Bay out to San Francisco to mm-hmm. other parts of California, blah, blah, blah. I don't think they really establish that in Maximum Overdrive. I'm not really sure if it's clear this is happening outside of Wilmington, North Carolina. I mean, obviously, they show a wide shot of the entire planet, so you assume, but nothing outside of that takes place outside of Wilmington, North Carolina. And you don't get, like, radio reports of, like, Los Angeles and New York are both in smoke today because... Whatever. You kind of do, um, because there's a there's very briefly, right at the beginning of the movie, there's a radio report when um, Brett is riding in the car with the Bible salesman, where they're explaining that, like, there are reports of machines sort of turning against their owners. Right, but that's like, the local Wilmington station. Are you sure? Because I don't think they really identify Pretty themselves. Sure. It's just on the radio, and then the Bible salesman was like, oh, I'm going to turn that off. We, You know, well, burr, burr, yeah, burr. But I'm greasy the, the- and gross. Just, you know, taking a guess because of how radios work. It's probably a radio station close by. Otherwise, they wouldn't, especially in the 80s, because they wouldn't have been able to pick it up from where they were. You know, right. Uh, It was not nearly as common. Well, there's like, uh, there's, you know, nationally syndicated news programs that they would, you know, broadcast to local radio stations. Like, NPR doesn't only do local stories all day. We also get Steve Inskeep. Like, it's yes. not like he comes down to Northwest Arkansas, like, hey guys, no. Steve Inskeep here, I'm here to record at, um, right. whatever our station no, is, KNWA. I just spent, you know, a lot of times when they do those, I mean, I, I could be wrong. And I think the radios go out, too. Like, I mean, I, oh, I know yeah, that they the, do. the city, that the, the place with the bridge that Stephen King is at at the beginning of the movie is definitely a different place than the Dixie Boy. It may, the Dixie Boy may be just outside of that city, but I'm just saying that it's not, like, only that small gas station like it's definitely oh yeah i was just yeah i was just thinking uh you know that in 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 the birds they don't really explain it and they kind of you know insinuate that it's becoming a national phenomenon Mm -hmm. in the (laughs) maximum overdrive they over explain it and then they i mean you're right the they don't really get across sort of an apocalyptic tone really I mean, they kind of do, sort of, like, because there's all those trucks that show up that, like, line up to get fueled. So, like, there's the implication that this is, like, a very large problem that's affecting the whole world, but you don't really get a sense of the scope. It's a very localized story. We only care about these specific people, and they have a fucking easy time of it. Like, nothing really goes that wrong for them. Uh, There's, like, the one moment when Bubba goes out and shoots 
blows up a truck or or the the Hummer, maybe something like that. It was some truck that he blew up, and then the military platform vehicle shoots him and a bunch of people inside. But that's like the lowest point of the movie, and that's not that low. Like they have worse, they go through worse in Tremors than they do in Maximum Overdrive. They like they've got military weapons, and they're like, well, we've got these weapons. I guess we'll leave. Bye. <laughs> right. They get on a boat. They sail away. Nothing like they they have no further issues. And the movie even ends with being like, and the survivors are still survivors. Yep. Well, well, I should say is the survivors are still survivors. And then you hear Curtis, you know, I get seasick. <laughs> and then it's the credits. That is one of my criticisms. <laughs> I, 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 that's Lisa Simpson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> playing the most. I, I know that this was direction that like that she chose, I believe. Like she she was like she came up with how she wanted to play her character. And I know I'm sure that a lot of that stuff that she said was like sort of ad libbed. Like she was just was, riffing yeah. things off the top of her head. But I just the shrew character is one of those characters <laughs> that when it shows up, especially when it's something like written and directed by men where I'm like, Oh, oh, King, what well, are you doing? <laughs> That's true. However, it's not, I, I wouldn't say, I, I could be wrong, it's been, you know, forever since I read, like, The Taming of the Shrew or anything, but uh, Yardley Smith is, you know, she's really charismatic, and even though technically her role in the film is quote-unquote nagging wife, for me, there's only, like, a couple of moments where it comes off as slightly annoying, and the rest of the time it is comic gold it is the probably the strongest performance in the entire film easily um it's the glue that basically holds the film together because i'm afraid if she was not in that movie there might not be a single likable character in the movie because otherwise everybody else is either just like wallpaper paste or they're a cartoon villain and she is the only like comic relief you know thing that's adding some fun to the film and so yeah, I'll I'll never ever ever apologize <laughs> for liking that part. You're, I, mean, I don't you're think not- she will either because she was talking about how you know after they tested it for you know uh, test audiences, obviously they were like they reacted really strongly to your character. They thought she was going to be a huge deal. <laughs> you know, later she did The Simpsons, so I guess she did become a huge deal. But they thought <laughs> she was going to be like a huge, the next ingenue or whatever. And so they were setting her up to go on, like, The Tonight Show and all this other stuff. And then when the movie flopped, they basically rescinded all their invitations. They were like, no, we don't actually need you on The Tonight Show anymore. That's so sad. I I know, right? I cannot believe. I mean, you're right. There there are not many performances. There's one other performance in that movie that is brilliant. And it is is a brief, shining, very short performance. And that is whatever the name of that fucking character is that gets shot after he, like, slams the doors open and says something to the effect of the fuck's going on here (laughs) and then he immediately gets gunned down by the platform gun and like that guy when he went down i was like there goes the best character in the movie (laughs) i love that guy (laughs) and then everyone else is just like there like brett and and uh what is emilio estevez's character i cannot remember i don't know he's a coach from the mighty ducks right yeah. It's a crossover film, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, this was yeah. 
This was early in uh, the coach's yeah. life. Later, he gets his <laughs> life together, becomes an inspiring hockey coach, and coaches them all the way to the championship. Something like that. I remember that. <laughs> but yeah, like, but I mean, Bubba Hendershot is a cartoon villain, but he's an enjoyable cartoon villain. Like he, he plays that slimy southern douchebag also one of the few that has the accent down really well Mm -hmm. that that specific it's like north carolina georgia that region that has this weird there's like a syrupy quality to it yeah it is very uh it's very saccharine but it's it's also like kind of almost english too you know like yeah. scarlet o'hara like you see that over there boy you yeah. know like it's very like there are actually people who still talk like that surprisingly mm-hmm. um i think i do think from a general perspective that the southern accent has kind of mellowed a bit um and some of them have retained you know some of their individuality and some of them have kind of bled together and i do think that kind of older style of accent is kind of diminishing mm-hmm. I, I i'm so sad by the way accents are being flattened it's not just in the south it's all of them oh, oh yeah although aside do you notice that um anytime you want to portray someone as like less intelligent you give them an accent not yes not just southern like it's really common to think like well, we need the racist so we're gonna be like, have them have that that southern accent and be like listen here you i'm hateful and will say cartoonishly bad things but like mm-hmm. it's the same thing if you give someone like uh, like a brooklyn accent or like a yeah. jersey i'm accent. a bad guy from boston yeah, yeah. all you have to do is have, have someone be talking like they they live from a like they're from the northeast or something and immediately you're like that person's a dummy bad guys yeah yeah fucking it's bad guy so interesting it, not even necessarily bad just like i mean because it's the same thing with uh connie and maximum overdrive like she she has like a super thick southern accent <laughs> but curtis are you dead <laughs> and she's portrayed as like not a very smart character like very very dim and and whiny oh oh sorry the last thing sorry i forgot to talk about the acdc because i'd mentioned the birds music oh yeah yeah uh you know like i mentioned earlier the soundtrack to maximum overdrive is kind of the thing that really dates the film because it's all done by acdc but surprisingly the 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 album which is who made who uh is actually way more popular than the (laughs) the the movie um, and it was kind of a needed thing for ACDC because, you know, ACDC was really popular after the release of Back in Black. They were gaining popularity with their old lead singer, Bon Scott. And then when he died in like 78, 79, I think they decided that they, you know, he wanted the band to go on without him. And so they found another lead singer, Brian Johnson. They went and recorded Back in Black not too long after that. It became a huge album, probably one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Uh, and then their reputation started taking quite a bit of a hit after that because they were so popular and because they were, they did, <laughs> they do mention Satan a couple times in their, in their lyrics, if I remember correctly. I mean, but, the first um, song on Back in Black is Hell's Bells. That's, that's true. You've, you've yeah. got me ringing Hell's Bells. Yeah. And Bon Scott sang Highway to Hell. So, you know, they came by that reputation, honestly. Yeah. 
and a lot of people like evangelists and stuff started claiming that because of those references, you know, because they exist in their music, that they're actually Satanists and that there were also some serial killers around that time from the 80s and 70s that claimed to the local newspapers and stuff that they were inspired by ACDC's lyrics, which just kind of dumped on top of that, you know, coupled with crazy evangelist stuff. So ACDC was having to do all this, you know, PR work, basically saying we're not Satanists, we're just anti-establishment, that kind of thing. And and that's why they have those things in their lyrics. Anyway, so their albums were not selling great, their reputation was tarnished, and they weren't really big fans of having their music used in movies. Specifically, they wanted the option to, like, read the script and make sure that it was okay. Um, I guess. And so, um, Stephen King, I think he had a pretty good relationship with them because one, he had already, uh, he was a big fan. And two, he had already actually used one of their songs in a previous film of his. And I don't remember what it was. He didn't direct it, but it was like a movie based on his material, you know? So they were already familiar, I guess, kind of with each other getting the rights and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and so when Stephen King sent them the script and they were like, this is amazing. We love it. It's everything we've ever wanted. Because why would you not? If you're if you're hard rocker anti-establishment, you're going to love Maximum Overdrive because it's all just everything exploding and people dying. <laughs> you know, it's just the best. And so yeah. they were like, it's great. We love it. And so they decided to do they didn't want to just re-release new or old material. And just make their pan their make their fans pay more for stuff that they already released. So there's some original material. The big song from the album is called "Who Made Who." direct reference to that lady you know that's crazy uh diner the waitress lady she runs outside and she's like we made you we, we made, made you that's Sam. That's, <laughs> that's that's what it's in reference to uh there's some other original songs and there's also some older songs and it actually amazingly for whatever reason who made who became a huge hit outside of the movie because the movie was not that big of a hit um, and the album itself also sold really well. And so it kind of led to a renaissance for their music. I mean, it didn't get to the same level as Back in Black because none of their, I don't think any of their albums have ever reached that apex. But uh, it did lead to like a renaissance of their music. And it, I think it, I think it leads into like, for those about to rock and things like that, I think, or maybe the Razor's Edge. I don't remember. Um, anyway, hmm. so it's really interesting how... This movie, even though it could not save itself, managed to help save the career of ACDC to a certain extent. I want to circle back to something we were talking about earlier. We were talking about the the weird um, way that the, there's no like logic to the machines coming to life because some some did, some didn't. It wasn't clear, like for example, whether the power was like going out because the power itself was like sentient and being controlled or if it was just like the trucks were somehow cutting the power it was very or unclear. maybe the power plant is sentient right I don't know. yeah who knows um, the the in the short story that it's based on trucks the tone first of all obviously way different um it's a more serious story and it's got a very like it's got a very grim tone to it the it's about it's 
a lot of the characters in the movie are present in the story, sort of, or or events that are, if you ask someone to start na- naming things that happened in the movie, most of the things that they probably would name in the movie also happen in the short story, like the we made you thing happens, but it's not a waitress that does it. If I remember correctly, it's there. there is a married couple. They're not named Connie and Kurt. I forgot what their actual names are. But, um, and it's the wife that, the, like, proto-Connie, that starts shouting, like, we made them! We made you! Um, it's not hammy, though. It's sort of like a panicked, desperate thing, um, because some, like, I don't remember exactly what happened. I think, I think the, the, there's a salesman in the story as well. Not a Bible salesman specifically, I don't think, uh, but a salesman of some kind. Uh, he's not slimy like he is in the movie. He's kind of barely a character. He's there long enough to try he basically as the trucks start to circle the the truck stop he tries to make a break for it and one of the trucks runs him over and that's when the the newlywed wife character starts freaking out saying we made them there's also in the movie whenever the bible salesman starts like shouting help me from the the ditch that also happens in the story but it's played very differently they don't go to like try to rescue him they hear it in the middle of the night. It's a f- story told in first person, and the main character uh, hears it, and um, the wife hears it, and she starts to say something, and he sort of shushes her, and he's like, "So if 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 you heard anything, and you told other people about it, would you would your husband there be be willing to uh, overlook this, or do you think he'd go out there and try to help? And would do you want him to do that? Do you think that's a good risk he should take?" And so she's like. I don't hear anything, and she, like, goes back to bed, and the guy just continues to scream until he dies. There's also no... Bill is not a character in this... Like, the Emilio Estevez's character isn't in the story, sort of. That same type of, like, you know, generic protagonist role is there, but he's... He's he's not... He doesn't work for the restaurant. There is a short order cook in the story, but he's uh, just, like, a random background character. And the main character just sort of happened to pull into the truck stop about the same time whenever everything went down. And a a key thing in the story, they don't mention any other electronics coming to life. It is specifically trucks that they're talking about that are coming to life. And at first, it's just the big rigs that are circling them. But eventually, a truck, like a pickup truck that's parked outside, seems to come to life and start to circle with the rest of the trucks. And that's a moment where the narrator has a sort of like, oh god, it's spreading kind of moment. Which, again, is why it's so baffling that when King adapted his own story, because he wrote the script to this movie, there's no cars or trucks that come to life. The big trucks do. There's some. Do you? I can't think of a single car. A weird little pickup truck thing that was at that gas station, you know, it comes to life and tries to run that Oh, yeah, the tow over. truck, yeah. I suppose. And so, yeah. Yeah. But still, that was like a key moment in the story when that truck comes to life, because they were like, oh, shit. And the the story actually ends with, like, a very apocalyptic tone. He, the main character is, like, listening, and he hears a plane going by overhead, and he the, the final sort of narration is roughly something to the effect of, I want to believe that there are people on the plane. I want to. And that's sort of how the story ends, is they're like, mm. well, I guess we're slaves to the machines now. <laughs> the end. <laughs> very different tone than the buck wild nonsense we got for the movie Mm -hmm. definitely yeah and you know the the same thing is true of the birds to a certain extent because the movie 
you know, takes place in Bodega Bay, which is an actual place in Northern California, just north of San Francisco. The short story and, and, you know, also the movie starts kind of slow because, you know, you get the opening titles and she goes to like a bird shop and, you know, there's birds in there. But it's very much focused on, you know, the love story, the sexual tension between um, what's her face? Melanie. Mm, Yes. Melanie, the main tension between Melanie and Mitch. And, you know, the birds just kind of enter into the story periodically as like a little reminder, like, hey, we're also here until, you know, it eventually full, you know, goes into like full attack mode and you no longer care about the romance anymore. Mm-hmm. It is not really like that in the short story because it takes place, first of all, in the UK. It's in a Cornish seaside town, which is in Cornwall, which is like on the very bottom tip of the UK. Um <laughs> On the main part that I guess is not Northern Ireland. I don't know. (laughs) And it starts when, you know, it it basically takes place in this small farming village. And the main character is a farmer and his family. And he notices a bunch of, you know, birds that are acting kind of weird. And, you know, he just attributes it to a cold snap. And then he, you know, occasionally he gets pecked by a bird. He hears a tapping on his window. You know, birds fly into the door, into the windows, and eventually, you know, it just escalates further and further, and, like, the BBC declares a national emergency. Um, They're cut off to supplies, like grocery supplies and all these other things. They're trapped inside their houses, and eventually, everything just kind of ends. There's radio silence. They don't know what's going on. They don't know how many people have survived. And the main character guy just kind of decides to go outside smokes his last cigarette as if to face the firing squad and goes outside to face the birds because like the rest of his family has died. Interesting. Um, yeah. So it's kind of similar, um, kind of a similar situation, you know, where the story feels very apocalyptic. I mean, that's fitting though, because the movie is very apocalyptic. It is, but it's fascinating because the, the, the short story just makes a point of it right off the bat. You know, it's like, oh, small farmer, oh, there's birds. And in the movie, it's like, after the opening titles, it's such an ancillary concept, you know? Like, there's a wide shot of some birds flying over the city, which is normal in San Francisco because they're so close mm. to the ocean. And then they go into the bird shop and they're talking about birds. There's birds in there and, you know, they start freaking out, whatever. Understandable, because they're pet birds, you know. Um, So they make a lot of noise in a pet shop, you know. It's not until she gets struck by the gull as she's, you know, boating back from his place that you're like, huh, that was weird. Was that intentional? Why would a gull dive bomb, you know, especially when she made the trek all the way out there? Fine. Is just when she was coming back to the mainland. And that's when, you know, you kind of start getting pulled away from the love story and more into, so what is actually going on with these birds? Uh, it's a really interesting turn in the story. And it's also a really famous shot, obviously, because a lot of that stuff where she's, you know, in the boat is filmed in front of like sodium vapor lights to kind of keep the, what they called uh, fringing, Because at the time, they would use, like, blue screens and green screens. Mm -hmm. But it was really bad with fringing around the edge and with birds especially flapping. They didn't want all the fringing to take place around their wings. So they would film it in front of these yellow sodium vapor screens. And Mm -hmm. that basically eliminated that. It's a very complicated process. I'm not really... 
I'm not going to go into it because it's a whole, like, multi-projection process just to get the fucking thing on film, and it's it's a lot of work. Aside from that, you know, it's just it's just really fascinating how both of the, you know, the, the original stories are very kind of apocalyptic. And then in their ad- adaptations, it was like, I'd like to focus on romance. And the other one was like, I want to focus on da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da! Boom! <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's funny, though. Because you say they focus on romance, and like there is a romance that romance almost feels like a bait and switch to me. Because it's it's introduced in the beginning. It's very clear that they they have an attraction to each other, and there's that sort of like antagonistic flirting that they do, where you know he's like, "I saw you in court," and she's like, "Oh yeah," and then he's like, "Yeah," I like when people get in trouble for when they break the law and they go to jail, you criminal. And there's they're, they're like flirting, but once the birds attack, that's gone. And and I, and I think if this movie were made by, like, anybody else, especially in that era, it would have ended with, like, the hero rescuing the girl and pulling her in and her, like, sort of fainting against his arms and the music would swell romantically and he would kiss her and, like, none of that shit happens. She, she does get saved, but it's like she just kind of gets dragged out of the room. She's catatonic. She's not there anymore processing anything, and he's just sort of trying to walk her to the car so that they can drive away. They don't get a romantic embrace. They don't really get, much, like, a kiss or anything. It, there's no there's no swell of music. It's just, like, oh, fuck it. None of that matters anymore. What matters now is we have to survive or, or, or we're going to be killed by these things. And I, I think that that's so interesting. And he did, he did the same thing, like, in Psycho, you know? Like, there's... There's, like, groundwork laid for romances that don't ever happen. They, they like, the, the darkness of the plot sort of overtakes them. And it's not that they're pointless, they just don't resolve the way that typical Hollywood movies do, and I think that's mm. neat. You know what's also really interesting? Uh, you talked about um, the this idea that the love story is almost kind of like a, it's almost like a bait and switch. I was doing, you know, a little bit of research and there's actually um an interpretation, well it's a it's a monograph that was written by uh Camille Paglia. Yes, Paglia. So she wrote a monograph specifically talking about the birds and how it is meant to be the birds are meant to be interpreted as the many facets of female sexuality and by extension nature. And what's really interesting and I didn't even think about it until, you know, actually reading about this that um the fact that other than Mitch every other main character in the story is a woman and Mitch his character is specifically affected his the centri- you know the 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 crux of his character is based on his relationship with his mom his sister and his ex-lover which is Annie the school teacher mm-hmm. and all of those things are thrown off balance by the introduction of Melanie another woman. I think that's a really interesting interpretation, a really interesting take on there's also some themes of like, you know, entrapment, basically how people are confined to their homes and how quickly, you know, this idea of, you know, civilization becomes a trap um mm-hmm. and how quickly it can turn on us, that kind of stuff. Anyway, it's it's funny that you bring that up though, the especially about the many facets of female sexuality. I did not really clock that most of the, like, that the vast majority of the main characters are women. Did not clock that. Um, something that, that I did notice, though, and when you talked about it, it, like, reminded me. Whenever Melanie meets Annie, 
It takes a long time before Annie reveals that she knows Mitch because she was in a relationship with him previously. And, like, she says something to the effect of, like, their, the mom broke them up because she didn't like her for reasons. I'm assuming mother-in-law reasons. Yeah, you know. mother-in-law. But for a huge chunk of that time before she finally said, oh, I dated Mitch, I thought she was flirting with Melanie. And I thought, I thought like, really heavily the two of them had like palpable chemistry and yeah. i was like are they supposed to be into each other because i'm getting heavy lesbian vibes from both of them <laughs> and you know i i always felt that way too even watching it as a kid um which is funny even watching it as a kid i remember thinking are those two like into each other do they kind of want to be more than friends it's the vibe i'm getting you know it's not the first time it's happened you know when we watched frankenstein you have that fantastic scene with uh Dr. Frankenstein and uh, Face, I can't remember, uh, Van Helsing. Is that his name? Van Helsing. No. No. Van Helsing. He plays Van Helsing in Dracula. Same guy plays Dr. Fuckface in Frankenstein. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah, that's that's it. It's Fuckface. German, you know. Yes, it is. Yes. That's actually Fuchface. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But yeah, that that same scene, you know, that chemistry, how he has like no chemistry with his wife or anything. Mm -hmm. But then in that scene, there's fantastic chemistry. Uh, it's not exactly the same in the birds because you know she has a really good chemistry with Mitch. I always thought I thought, she does, you yeah. know, and especially in that first scene, it's really it's really bubbly. But that's what I know. That, that's how yeah. I noticed it is because her her interactions with Mitch, like you can tell they're flirting. It's very obvious that they're into each other, and like it's enjoyable. It's an enjoyable sort of back and forth, teasing each other, flirting. It's because of that though. That when she talks to Annie, it feels like the exact same scene playing out. Like, they're doing yeah. the exact same demeanors. And I was like, man, they're flirting, right? <laughs> they're, they're into each other. I have a suspicion it's because when Mitch and Melanie are talking, uh, Melanie is one of those people, you can tell on her face, at least the way she's characterized, she's constantly thinking and calculating. What am mm-hmm. I going to say next? What am I going to do next? And... I feel like that in that same scene, that is the kind of woman that Mitch is attracted to. Because in that same scene, when Annie and Melanie are together, that's what they're doing to each other. They're basically calculating back and forth. How much do I want to reveal to this person? How much do they need to know? And so it kind of, there's a lot of tension that feels, you know, that's kind of like a sexual tension. But there's mm-hmm. also like this tension, this give and take, this cat and mouse game of of like, how far am I willing to, you know, reveal all the information, you know, that kind of stuff. That's true. Um, which is also, yeah, uh, really interesting. So you have like two two women that kind of have a chemistry, but they also have like an almost standoffish relationship with each other, you know, at, at the mm-hmm. very beginning because they're like, I don't know how much I can trust this person. But again, that's um, true of of Melanie yeah. and Mitch too. Like, oh, they, yeah, they have definitely. a very standoffish relationship because he he's holding back that he she's pretending to be a fucking bird employee, yeah, like bird shop employee, even though she's not. And he's definitely holding back that he knows her. He's trying to pretend like he doesn't realize mm-hmm. that she works there. And, and so can, they do that same thing. You can thing. see the change in her character as soon as she finds out that he's a lawyer and he actually like helped do some of her prosecution stuff. You can mm-hmm. see it like change from playful flirting to fuck i'm also still going to flirt but now it's angry flirting you know it's like (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's pretty accurate yeah she's she's very pissed at him but that doesn't stop her from being like you know i'm gonna buy those lovebirds and deliver them to her wink (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile in maximum Uh, overdrive 
when the two characters, like, the moment when Brett says to Bill, hey, you're pretty cute, I was like, I guess they're a couple now. Like, (laughs) they don't have any chemistry. They've barely said anything to each other, but sure. And then, oh my god, the line that she delivers after they've had sex, when she, like, rolls over to him and says, you sure make love like a hero. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) so bad. It's funny. Oh, although it does kind of sound like a Stephen King line, you know, it sounds like something that would be in one of his books. He's not good at romance, at least not in his early books. I I remember reading uh, Lisey's story and Bag of Bones and liking the romance in both of those a lot, especially Lisey's story. Lisey's story feels like really genuine, but like Salem's lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's so bad. Uh, so I was doing some research into uh, life on the set of both of these movies, and um, both of them had really terrible working conditions. <laughs> For maximum overdrive, I'll start with first, because it's, it's bad, but doesn't feel as bad in some ways. It, it, like, you can chalk it up to Stephen King just being a, am, an amateur, because he had never directed a movie before. He just kind of was like, nah, I'll do it, because no one else will. <laughs> um, and uh, so they were like, uh, I, I, was, I read an interview with Yardley Smith where she was talking about stunts on set. Like, they didn't have stunt people, at least not a lot of stunt people, at least. Uh, they were doing a lot of their own stunts at times that were extremely dangerous. She, uh, I believe it was a, there was a truck that was supposed to, like, race at her. Oh, I think it was when the car drove into the restaurant. Yep. Yeah. And she got, she, like, managed to dash out of the way, but it was, like just in time because it came way too fast and uh a a lot of things like that where the stunts on set were done by this seems cool okay go do that and i think yardley smith even mentioned that like they they weren't getting like paid hazard pay or anything it was just sort of like she didn't know any better but she she did mention in in the interview that i watched that uh yeah she was like that that was probably some genuine fear on the screen because when that car came through the wall, it was way faster than it was supposed to be. And I was like, what are y'all doing? <laughs> <laughs> and I know that, um, so the stunt at the end when the, I think it's the ice cream truck that flips upside down, uh, it was supposed to go end over end. The way they were going to do the stunt and make the ice cream truck flip was they had this wooden post sort of built into it and they were supposed to hit it and then it would cause the forward momentum to make the truck flip but it didn't hit correctly and it didn't flip like they expected it to it hit flipped upside down and then that was it and the way it hit the post it caused splinters from the wood to sort of just shrapnel out and it actually cost the the director of i think it was the director of photography his eye like he got shot in the eye with these wooden splinters and it like literally cost him vision in his eye he ended up suing stephen king for the injury which fair you know yeah and then uh, king settled outside of court which again you know fair that was sloppy of all of them like obviously king is to blame you also should probably blame the producers for like not having someone on set to like provide more oversight to be like hey let's not do that (laughs) yeah well it was basically you know the film was was designed to be like how can we make this as low budget as possible so we can Mm -hmm. get lots of explosions and you know trucks and stuff so everything was like we'll film it in wilmington north carolina there's not a big film community there it's like just a bunch of 
regular townspeople that are helping, you know, some of them have no film experience. Some of them do, you know, that they bring in, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's a lot of like Kings, a first time director, De Laurentiis only, you know, had done a few films, you know, so he was pretty big, but you know, it wasn't like an established movie making studio, like Paramount or something, right? you know? And so, yeah, I think you kind of get, even when, like, they talked about doing the, filming the explosion at the end, and how it was basically just one take, because it was, they filled up the the set that they built, and they were like, all right, blow it up! And uh, (laughs) they filled it with way too much C4, and so when they blew it, the C4 went first, and talked about how you could, like, feel it in counties over, because it was just so huge. And then once that's, because it's usually like a multi-stage thing, like a C4 to actually bring down the structure, and then you use something like TNT or whatever the other thing is to make big flames and smoke so that it's theatrical. Yeah. Uh, and and so you can see on, on film where it's a two-part thing, and mm-hmm. it's, yeah. And, and, and they talked about filming it, and they were like behind this plexiglass thing, and they were like, eh, it's great. And then, like, shrapnel, flaming shrapnel starts raining down on top of them, not very far from them. (laughs) And they're like, "Eh, it's fine, you know, like, but it could not be fine real fast. You learn that, you know, from, like, uh, what is it, the Twilight Zone movie? Uh, During, what's his name's uh, part? Because it was very the same attitude. John Landis, yeah, it's very the same attitude. Like, bigger is better, big, blow it up. And then, you know, that causes the helicopter to flip sideways and people get decapitated so yep yeah Yeah. so it can go south really fast with that same attitude so it's it's actually really lucky thing that that never happened on this set kind of makes you wonder how many movies have been made like that where people were just like oh fucking just and people very narrowly escaped death (laughs) yeah just just for the glory of being like i was in that movie (laughs) like evil dead or maximum you know just all those Movies with, like, shoestring budgets, mm-hmm. people punching each other in the woods, you know, just, like... <laughs> well, those those movies are usually, like, low budget, and they keep the scale of the story small because of it. Like, nobody's necessarily going to get super hurt from Goodnight Mommy. It's a very small right. budget, and it's easy to do, like, practical effects for the torture stuff that, like, n- no one's going to get hurt. They don't have some... They don't have to have a stunt person <laughs> doing necessarily that much stuff like the biggest scariest thing is the fire at the end and most well, of that can be handled yeah and then there's that part where she actually like runs outside and falls um right but most of that can be handled pretty easily it's not like they're they're blowing up truck stops and flipping trucks which no, yeah, yeah. is kind of crazy for a low budget movie to be doing stuff like that so yeah i mean they're they're honestly lucky that it it was just one person who lost an eye instead of someone dying (laughs) yeah uh meanwhile the birds movie set was um a nightmare for a multitude of reasons so alfred hitchcock is known for being a brilliant filmmaker and a piece of shit person um kind of similar to uh stanley kubrick they come from sort of the same stock of director of i like when my performances are real so i'm just going to make your life hell and that will show up on screen because that's what kubrick did to shelley duvall and the shining and that's very well known uh, that's what um the exorcist i'm trying to remember who directed the exorcist oh uh yeah yeah william friedkin is the director 
William Peter Blatty is the Peter Blatty, yeah. right, right, right. So anyway, William Friedkin was the same thing. Like he he was a douchebag to his actors on set and terrorized them. And Hitchcock, you know, did the same. the The one that's the most well known, the sort of famous terrible moment, is when Tippi Hedren's character goes up into the attic and she gets assaulted by birds. What was supposed to happen was that they were going to use mechanical birds to you know attack her, and it would be you know safe because they're mechanical birds. Instead, the mechanical birds, for whatever reason, uh, I don't know if they weren't working or if they just didn't look convincing on film when it came time to do it, but um, Tippy, in, in an interview I read with Tippy Hedren, she said that one of the producers uh, or production assistants or someone came into her trailer and they were, they, they like, she could tell they had bad news to deliver because they were doing that sort of sheepish, like, eh, dancing around and then they finally were just blurted out, the mechanical birds aren't working so we're going to use real words and then they just bolted from her room. Uh, so when she showed up on set, what she had to do was basically they shot that sa- that scene for five days, and it was just five days of Alfred Hitchcock throwing birds at her, live birds. I mean, the the scene with the the kids was also really harrowing because those kids were <laughs> being chased by birds a lot. Yes, um, but well, also those kids, all of that for whatever fucking reason, uh, because Hitchcock hated location shots so that whole scene where all those kids are like running down the hill you know from the birds Mm -hmm. uh is is again one of those shots that's filmed in front of one of those sodium vapor projectors because they shot on location a camera guy going down the hill backwards and they just (laughs) made all the kids get on a giant treadmill projected that in the background and they were like and go and threw birds at them, and, like, when they would fall, which you have to fall, you know, when birds... The other kids would just accidentally, like, step on and trample the other kids, and it was kind of a nightmare, so... Yeah, Tippi Hedren, um, so she endured five days of having live birds thrown at her. At one point, I believe Cary Grant uh, visited the set and described her as the bravest person he'd ever met, because she was (laughs) enduring this psychological trauma for a week. Uh, the last day of filming, um... She had to wear the special version of her outfit that they made that had holes in it, and she had elastic bands wrapped around her underneath her clothes, and they attached string to those elastic bands and tied them to the bir- to live birds' feet so that they were attached to her as they flew around. And one of them pecked her in the face, and it pierced her eyelid, and like almost pierced her eye, and that's when she was like, I'm done, I'm good, bye, and she left, and Hitchcock, Thankfully, was like, well, I think we've got everything we need. And, you know, he also, though, and this is the somehow worse part, uh, was just a fucking grosso, like a sex pest. You can tell he has a type because all of his movies star like the same type of blonde woman, you you know, like uh, the 60s version of a Fox News host. Yeah. And uh, he was known to get obsessed with his leading actresses. It was very clear that when he was casting these women, it wasn't just that they were beautiful. He was, like, into them. But Tippi Hedren, specifically, as far as I know, at least, this is the only case I have seen where he, where I, I saw, like, it reported, but he sexually assaulted her on set, both on The Birds and also in the next movie that he made, which was Marnie, with Tippi Hedren as the main character, Marnie. Several times from what I read, there was like, there were times in his office, there were times in the car where he was like trying to force himself on her. And one of the the last time that she saw him 
was uh, like at the end of filming Marnie, he tried to force himself on her and she told him no and she started to leave and he told her essentially like the if you leave you'll never work in this town again he said i think actually his words were something to the effect of i'll ruin your career and her response was do what you have to do and then she left and he did she didn't get hired for like 3 years after that she didn't get any work and even then her work was like pretty sparse because she was under contract from him and he wouldn't hire her because she turned him down and he's a petulant man baby I didn't know this at all. So I wanted, I was looking up, there's a, the movie Hitchcock that came out in 2012 with Anthony, uh, Anthony Hopkins, uh, is based on a book and I was going to buy the book. Uh, and so I was looking into the book and while someone was talking about the movie Hitchcock, they also mentioned that same year, another movie came out also about Hitchcock, uh, called The Woman. And that's because that's what Tippi Hedren that's what Hitchcock would call her after she turned him down and he basically blacklisted her. He wouldn't even say her name. He would just say that woman. That movie was made with, um, I don't remember his name. He's been in a shit ton of stuff. Little short British actor kind of has a, uh, very bug eyed look to him. Uh, Toby oh. something. He played Hitchcock in that movie. Oh. And I, I, when I read the, the woman, what it was about, I was like, wait, what? What's it about? And that's when I learned. You know, I started looking it up, and Tippi Hedren had talked, has been very open about this. Um, she still ends her interviews saying that he was a genius, and she has a great amount of respect for his work and what he did. And she kind of chalks it, like her acting career up as it wasn't something she was interested in continuing anyway, because she likes. She went on to like start an animal preservation and like um, help um, endangered species and stuff, and she says that she found more value in that work, but it also... Eh, praising his movies still feels very much like a this guy is a f cultural totem that sort of changed the movie industry, and so it's difficult to be like, no, he was a piece of shit and I hated him, so fuck him. You guys are bad for watching this movie. So, <laughs> But it's a, it's a real tarnished legacy with him. He's yeah very gross. Yeah, there's like a long string of actresses who have had very rocky relationships with Alfred Hitchcock, like Vera Miles, like Janet Lee, like Tippi Hedren, like probably Grace Kelly. If I were to do yeah. more research into it, I'm sure there's some horrible things between those two as well. So, I mean, it's also just probably a safe, safe assumption. Like if he's done it to, mm -hmm. uh, to one, he's probably done it to the others, especially since not, like I said, I, I haven't, I haven't read of any, any moments like, with Tippi Hedren in the, in the sense that it was like an explicit, like assault, an explicit moment of sexual assault, several moments of sexual assault. He's just always been sort of a creep and a grosso and had a like inappropriate relationships, like inappropriate boundaries with the actresses. But it was, that was the specific instance I've, I've found of like Hitchcock did a real bad, yeah. like just capital B bad. So it's one of those things where it's like, Movies are great. And then you're like, man, too bad about that director. <laughs> right. Okay, I think that about does it. If you want to join the discussion and share your own thoughts with us, hit us up online. We're on Twitter at eerie underscore earfuls. Our email is eerie.earfuls at gmail.com. And our website is eerieearfuls.com. You can subscribe to us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other places. If you like the show, please spread the word, and if you're feeling extra generous, we'd love if you left us a review. 
Our theme music is Baba Yaga by Kevin McLeod. Our synopsis music is Anxiety and Night of Chaos, also both by Kevin McLeod, licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 license. Find more music at incompetech.com. Thank you for listening, and stay scared, everyone. Okay, I think that about does it. If you want to join the car... Okay, Gosh, I think... <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> okay. Okay, I think that about does it. Fuck, god damn! <laughs> How is it the outro? <laughs> <laughs> I did great in the summary, and in the outro, I'm... Okay, I think does it No more squirrel jokes.